So you may have noticed uh, in watching TV that there's a new Men in Black movie coming out, Men in Black 4 or Men in Black 400, I can't remember how many they've done, but uh, you would have probably noticed their commercials as we were all watching the Raptors take the NBA uh, championship, uh, rightfully in the country in which basketball was born. Uh, and anyways, as you're watching these Men in Black commercials, those NBA commercials, I hope the movie's as good as the NBA commercials because uh, they were pretty funny. If you haven't seen a Men in Black movie, um, there's, this, there's this shtick in the movie, and it's that essentially there's aliens living among us, and whenever somebody sees something they're not supposed to see, the organization comes in and flashy things them. And by flashy thing, it's like a flashy thing. And they kind of flash them, and then they don't remember what they saw. And so this is a big part of kind of their work, is making sure that Nobody sees what they're not supposed to see, and if anybody sees what they're not supposed to see, you shut that down. We've been going through a series the last number of weeks on the risen Christ and uh, the implications of that resurrection, the implications of the eyewitnesses that saw him. And uh, we've started a new series called uh, Rest, Renewal, and Reconciliation, where in the book of Acts we see what happens in that first century when eyewitnesses, not one or two, Hundreds saw what the religious leaders and what Rome thought they weren't supposed to see. And then what happens as you come to texts like our text today, which is Acts chapter 4, which we'll turn to in a minute, what happens is the religious leaders in Rome, they want to converge and flashy thing everybody who saw this resurrected Christ. Not, not one or two, not a legend, but literally Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, that in short order, in the 40 days that, Jesus, that the resurrected Christ was walking among us before he ascended, he appeared to 500 people at one time, sort of doing away with the group hallucination theory. It's not one person might have a hallucination, but 500 people don't hallucinate and see the same thing. And so we see this in the early church. And what happens in this text, I'm just giving you some background before we read Acts chapter 4, is... Um, that the Sadducees, they kind of converge on this meeting where, where uh, Peter is preaching. And the Sadducees are a religious uh, group that don't believe in the resurrection. And they were reject the eyewitness accounts regarding the resurrection. And along comes Peter. Not only is Peter claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus, but he actually just healed a lame beggar in the name of the resurrected Jesus. And now there's thousands of people gathered together at Solomon's portico at the temple, listening to Peter talk about the resurrected Jesus, watching this once lame man dance around praising the name of the resurrected Jesus, and this entire thing is a nightmare for their belief system. And as thousands of people were amazed at this healing and amazed at uh, the name of Jesus, the power in the resurrected name of Jesus that accomplished this healing, uh, Peter looks out on them and he says to them, and this is back in chapter 3, he says, why are you looking at us as though through our own power and piety we healed this man? Right? This Jesus, the author of life, who you crucified, who was raised from the dead, Jesus healed this man. And then Peter called that crowd to believe in this resurrected Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, since the book of Acts, has been moving globally, generationally, cross-culturally for millennia, drawing people like us gathered here all around the world, across every culture, to believe in the resurrected Jesus, to find rest in the resurrected Jesus, to find hope in this, 
in the resurrected Jesus. He's been opening eyes, and I pray by the Holy Spirit he will continue to do that and open our eyes this morning. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as Peter and John were speaking to the temple, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already the evening. But many of those who had heard the word and believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priest's family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing here before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. This is God's word. As you look at the first few verses, you realize that Peter's interrupted mid-sermon. They just converge and they shut the service down. It'd be like people barging in that door right now, shutting this whole service down, taking Susan and I out and all, all the other uh, elder candidates and just throwing us in jail. That's what happened. And the problem, of course, is it's partly a, it's partly a, a theological problem in the sense that they don't believe in the resurrection. But they're also worried about a massive political problem. There's another reason they do this. It's politically motivated. Uh, the Sadducees, so I'm getting this from Josephus and other uh, historians, but Josephus in particular who's a, was a uh, historian of Jewish antiquity, he wrote in Book 18 that the Sadducees were appointed by Rome. Uh, not only were they appointed by Rome, the high priest was appointed by Rome, but they, enjo- they enjoyed a pretty luxurious life as a result of, you know, just Josephus said they lived in Epicurean luxury. So they, were, they had a pretty good, cushy religious life. And this is some seriously bad press um, not only for them theologically, because it's a contradictory message, they're saying there's no resurrection, but also they're, they're pretty worried that they're going to lose um, this comfortable situation they have accommodating Rome. And so if you look at verse 6, you're going to see there's a name there, Annas. And he was installed by the Roman governor, Quirinius. And if you do a little bit of history, what you're going to realize is Annas had five sons. And guess what? All five sons were the high priest. He also had a son-in-law who was, you guessed it, the high priest. And he also had a grandson who, you guessed it, was also the high priest. So, glaring nepotism aside, this is a a situation they want to shut down. This is a contradictory message, but also we we, we were pretty comfortable being in bed with Rome um, and enjoying this position, the most powerful position in Jerusalem. And this message about the resurrected Jesus is going to mess everything up. So, uh, you see, the way that Rome was, it's like today. 
It's like Kitchener Waterloo, a pluralistic culture. Right? So Rome was like, listen, you can keep all your little gods, it's fine. There's lots of gods. But while you're privately worshiping your little god, you have to say kairos kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. So a growing group in the populace by the thousands who are refusing to say kairos kurios, Caesar is Lord, because now they're confessing. Christos, kurios, Christ is Lord. That's a major problem for a totalitarian regime. So there's a lot of this kind of under the surface which is happening, which is going on. And it's not unlike uh, our city. The church, that the, or sorry, the context that the new church was born into, I, you know, pluralism ideology, uh, uh, ideology it's, not, it's not unlike today at all. From the beginning, we've been needing to defend the idea of one God, one Jesus Christ, an exclusive truth claim in a culture of multifaceted ideas about relative truth claims. That's nothing new for the church whatsoever. And so P- Peter's sermon, it's striking all these revolutionary notes and the Sadducees are alarmed and Rome is going to be alarmed later, not long after this. And they're all worried about, they're all worried about this little rebel alliance. And the easiest thing for the imperial forces of Rome and the imperial forces of Jerusalem to do to squash the little rebel alliance is produce a body. That would have been the easiest thing to do. Of course, they didn't produce a body because there's this growing number of eyewitnesses that had seen the body. Now, I'm not going to get into that uh, any further because the, in the series we just did, I talked a lot about historical reasons for us to believe the resurrection. So if you're here and you're exploring Christian faith and you're saying, yeah, no, I want some historical reasons to believe that. There's two things you can do. The first thing is, if you'd like to, you can go and listen on our website to the Risen series and I give those proofs. Or you can reach out to me. I have my email is on the bulletin. Buy me an espresso. I'm super cheap. I'll sit down with you. I'm 78% espresso anyhow. And I will give you a first century crash course in apologetics in why it's reasonable to believe that. So, well, let's have coffee, okay? We can do that. I'm not going to get into it now. But uh, when you get to verse 7, they want credentials. The Sadducees say, well, by what power did you do this? What, what authority did you heal this guy? And what authority are you standing in the temple in front of thousands of people? See, remember who the Sadducees are. They're the high priests are the teachers. And they're like, you came on our turf. You're sitting in, you're, you're in our, the porch of our temple, speaking and preaching to thousands of people. We'd like to know your credentials. What authority are you doing this? So the easiest thing Peter could have done was given a vague theological answer, an impotent political answer, and said, God did it. God healed him. So that would have been super easy. Do you know how many gods there were in ancient Rome? They wouldn't have cared. Oh, God healed him. There's my vague answer. Whew, got away with it. Peter doesn't give a vague answer. We just read it. It's a very specific answer. And... <laughs> Peter says, you want a name? I'll give you a name. And he gives him the name that's above every name. In verse 8, it says that Peter was filled with the Spirit when he said this. I want you to focus your eyes on that phrase, filled with the Spirit. What What does this text teach us? The indwelling presence of the Spirit of God empowers believers to bear witness to the Son of God in threatening environments. The Spirit of God has always empowered believers to give a reasonable and charitable and generous and bold witness to the Son of God 
in threatening environments. He did it then, he does it now, he'll do it in you, he'll do it in me. This is the work of the spirit at work. And it's an intimidating environment. Uh, again, if you go back and kind of look at history, the historians will tell you the way that these trials looked was uh, the Sadducees, the, the, the council, they sat in a huge semicircle and you stood there in the middle of them so that they could look through you and by you at each other and, you know, make faces and nod. And th- okay, imagine how intimidating that would be. It's you're just standing in front of the Jedi council while they're all like, mm, by what power did you do this? You know, this is what's happening. And they're like, this is an intimidating situation. They're all the most educated people in Jerusalem. Peter is not. He's standing there in their midst. That's the picture. The New Testament church was born into this pluralistic world of competing worldviews, just like this city. And so giving a defense for believing that Christ is the truth in a culture that embraces diverse truth, nothing new. And when you get to verse 12, he makes this, this bold claim. And he says, salvation is in no one else. You know, that's a universal truth claim. It's, it's, it's culturally offensive. It would be way more culturally palatable to say there's many gods, there's many ways to God. But, you know, this historical Jesus, he claimed to be God. And so either he's, so, you know, either he, Jesus was not God, which makes Christianity the worst religion of all of them, because our founder was a lunatic, right? Either he wasn't. Or he was, which means Christianity is the one true religion, superior to all other religions. That's culturally offensive to talk that way. It's much easier to be vague. Well, maybe there's lots of other ways. And maybe you're here this morning considering Christian faith and you're saying, yeah, preacher, this is exactly my problem with Christianity. Maybe you have friends that you talk to and this is their hang-up. They're like, you see, this is the problem. You're, you're saying... Um, you know, there's only one way to God through Jesus Christ. That's what Peter said. That's what you're saying. But everyone's path to God is true. Or maybe you're here and you're saying nobody's path to God is true because belief in God is ridiculous. Or maybe you have family and friends you talk to and they're saying, well, you're being exclusive. Everybody's path is true or none of the paths to God are true because it's ridiculous. Here's, here's the problem with exclusive truth claims. They offend us, but we all have them. They offend us, but we all live by them. Even if you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I'm not really sure, I'm more agnostic, there could be many ways to God. You're still living according, that's, that's still an exclusive claim. I'll, I'll explain it to you this way. Um, you, basically, if I'm saying Jesus Christ, as Peter said in this text, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. You say that's exclusive. But then you say, but my way of thinking about God is true. You know, there's a million ways to him. That's also exclusive. You know, Frederick Nietzsche famously said, all truth claims are power grabs. Well, if Nietzsche's right, his statement is a power grab. Other people will say things like, well, you know, our views of God are just our projections to deal with our insecurities or our projections of God is, is just kind of how we deal with life. Well, if that's true, then your disbelief in God is how you're dealing with life. Right? Evolutionary biologists will say, well, believing in God just... That just helped the species survive, you know? So it, you're, what you believe about God isn't true, just help the species survive. Well, if that's true, then your disbelief in God isn't true either. Because how is it that my reasoning faculties don't work, but your reasoning faculties do? So it's like this circular argument, it's like an impasse. You know in the, you know, you know in the greatest movie um, ever, ever created, The Princess Bride, um, you know how in that film there's this scene where with the wine, that famous 
scene where, the, the, where they're at, he's at this impasse of reason going back and forth, the man in black with the Sicilian. You know, it's like saying, you know, well, preacher, you're saying Jesus is the only way to God. And that's an exclusive truth claim. So clearly I can't choose the one in front of you. But then I say, well, hold on a second. You're just blanketing the beliefs of billions of people in the world, billions of people that believe that there is a God. And that's an exclusive truth claim. So clearly I can't choose the one in front of you. And then you say, yeah, but preacher, you believe that the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe, the creator of the cosmos. And that's a very exclusive claim. So clearly I can't choose the one in front of you. But then I say, yeah, but hold on a second. Modern science, by its own definition, is something that's observable and repeatable. And if 14 billion years ago nothing exploded for no particular reason, that is not something that is observable nor repeatable. And now we're not even in the realm of science. We're in the realm of philosophy. So clearly I can't choose the one in front of you. And it's just like this impasse. Because as much as exclusive truth claims are offensive, because it's easier to say, hey, well, maybe, huh, huh, huh. We all have them and we all live by them. We all live according to them. Like they are true. You know, C.S. Lewis was a, a gentleman who was an atheist, was an academic, philosopher, philosophic writer. And after C.S. Lewis came to faith in Christ, he wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. And here's what he said. He said, in his, he said you know, you can't go on explaining away everything forever. Or you will find that you've explained explanation away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that a window is transparent because the street or the garden beyond is opaque. But how if you saw through the garden too? A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through everything is the same as to not see. And so the religious leaders wanted to silence the preaching that proclaimed that Jesus had risen because if Jesus was the great high priest, that meant they were obsolete as high priests. Rome wanted to silence the preaching that proclaimed Jesus was Lord because if Jesus was Lord, that meant Caesar wasn't. And when you get to verse 10, you get to the crux of Peter's whole, whole defense and he's talking about healing and saving. You know, the one who healed is the one who saves. And in the Greek, there's a play on words where the root word for healing and the root word for saving is the same Greek word. It's sozo, which essentially means wholeness, to bring to wholeness. And so there's some irony that Peter is, is getting at here. And he's saying, you know, that you're annoyed that the name of Jesus is causing religious and political distress. But in the end, when you're taking your last breath, the name of Jesus is what you brings you from mortal distress to utter wholeness. There's only one thing that's going to bring you from distress to wholeness. And it's the name of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do at this point as we kind of examine this text in a broad way is now I want us to get specific and look at three things that the, that the Holy Spirit is doing here. The Holy Spirit did in Peter, and the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And in the church, not just in this room, but in his, his church globally. The Holy Spirit empowers you as a minister of the gospel in three ways. The first way is the Holy Spirit will humble you. The second thing is the Holy Spirit will embolden you. And then finally, the Holy Spirit will minister to others through you. So let's start with this first thing. The Holy Spirit will humble you. So that you don't relate to others with arrogance and self-righteous superiority. 
Do you know the only reason we have this text is that Peter didn't walk by a beggar? The only reason we have this glorious sermon about there being only one name under heaven by which men can be, the only reason we have it is because when a beggar in chapter 3, if you go back and read chapter 3, reached out and begged and Peter stopped and said, you know, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give to you. See, the Holy Spirit will humble you so that you'll start to see people that normally you would just walk by. You will start to care about people who, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, would be utterly invisible to you. The Holy Spirit humbles us so that we curved out of ourselves, so that as we are walking around in this room Sunday after Sunday amongst one another, that we're, that we're moving slow enough because in a spiritual sense, all of us were beggars who Christ gave scandalous grace to. And the gospel enables us to see that it's because of the goodness of Christ, that, that because he has come to us, it is humbling to us. And there's no room for a comparison, only compassion. And Peter was, do you know how many, in the ancient, I mean, let alone, I mean, today, we walk by beggars all the time. But in the ancient world, they, they weren't just walking by them, they were hostile towards them. The Spirit will humble you. When the gospel grips you, you start caring about people that you would have previously just walked right by. When you see a homeless person downtown Kitchener, when one of them musters enough, enough strength to come in here because he wants to sneak some cookies and a coffee after service. His name's Brian, by the way. Okay? When that happens, we see them. And I don't just mean that we physically see them. And I'm not trying to guilt trip you like, oh my goodness, I never saw Brian. Listen, if you're sitting there having a chat, you, you don't physically. I'm saying we see them, but something inside us by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a change there. <laughs> Where we don't make a conscious decision to be like, okay, I'm going to pretend like I didn't see you. We do that all the time. We do that in grocery stores. Because, you know, we're North Americans. We've got things to do and places to go and people to see. And like you see that person in what? Oh, You know? And that's, you know, that's fine if you've got to get some eggs and run home. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying the church will never be missional if the Holy Spirit doesn't do this work and the good news of the gospel is that he does in us. I'm not saying this to condemn any of you. I'm saying this as a provoking encouragement that this is actually not just a prescription for you. Hey, church, read that. Be missional. This is actually a description of what the Holy Spirit's role is in you, is doing in you. So that Sunday mornings is not, whoa. And day-to-day -day life is not that. But that there's a generosity there because the Spirit has humbled you. Here's the um, uh, other thing I'll mention is that, you know, maybe there's, there's people in this room or at school on your campus, right, in your locker room, at the office, uh, you know, that, you, that, you, that you've been avoiding because they got problems and you just don't have time for that. And the Spirit does this humbling work in us where we realize, you know what, I'm poor too. Christ came into my sin and 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, he became sin so that through his poverty we might become rich. 
And so when we see ourselves as the beggars, that's a revolutionary identity shift and how we relate to others with compassion and not comparison. So the first thing is the Holy Spirit will humble you so you don't relate to others with arrogance and self-righteous superiority. But here's the second thing. The Spirit will embolden you to share the gospel without being intimidated with a sense of inferiority. You know, you look at verse 13 and it says that the religious leaders, they saw boldness in Peter and John and perceived that, look at what, how it describes them. They were uneducated common men and they were astonished. They recognized they'd been with Jesus. Why were they astonished? What's the big deal here? Because in, in that culture, when the inferior is, culturally speaking, the inferior is surrounded by superiors, everybody would have expected Peter to sheepishly stare at the floor, averting his eyes. Nobody expected a passionate defense with fire in his eyes. The Spirit emboldens you, church. Everybody would have expected in this context, sheepishly avert the eyes. Nobody's expecting this passionate, bold defense of the faith. And when I say that, of course, I'm not appealing to us being obnoxious because that's unhelpful in every way. But I'm speaking about a boldness whereby you, you have had such a radical relocation of identity you don't ever stand in a situation where you feel like you're inferior because you're a child of God. And being a child of God means you're not better than anybody else. And it also means nobody's better than you. So you see Peter standing there and they're blown away because they're like, um, this is normally where you stare at the ground and feel two feet tall. And Peter's like, Mav, you want a name? I'll give you a name. You're not going to like my answer, but here it is. There's a boldness there. And so in verse 11, guess what Peter does? He actually quotes the scripture back to the Sadducees. It's Psalm 118, by the way. He, he quotes the scripture to them and he applies it to them. He says, you know, Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected. P.S. If you're following, you're the builders. You rejected him. And you rejected the very stone on which the whole household of God was built. I mean, that's some serious boldness. And as he says this, we recognize this, the, the beautiful implications of this gospel, that Jesus was the stone that was rejected. And he saved us through rejection. This is a picture of the kingdom that he is building, of the world that is to come, that we have a king who's built his kingdom not by taking power up, but by laying it down, by willing to be rejected. Our king saved us through loving and serving and dying, not oppressing. I challenge you to find a nation in the world that did not accrue power without oppressing somebody. This Jesus did not accrue power through oppression. This is at the core of our belief. This is why we can have confidence in turning to our Christ. We've got on the cross God dying for his enemies. And that is not an oppressive truth. That is a liberating truth. A God who would die for his enemies. He's not on the cross going, I'm dying for the good people. Because standing next to Jesus, there are no good people. Bad people are the only kind there are. And the good news of the gospel is that he laid his life down for all of us. And he saved all of us. And that is radical 
inclusiveness in the gospel. There's not a particular kind of person, but that in Jesus Christ, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And that is the truth. Now, you can find church systems that have been oppressive, and they're guilty of that. And you can find Christians by the droves that have been oppressive, and we're guilty of that. The church has been guilty of oppression. Christians have been guilty of oppression. But can you look to Jesus and find oppression? No. Has the church been a miserable failure? Yes. Can Christians be miserable failures? Yes. Have you ever been a miserable failure? Yes. This preacher has, it has been a miserable failure and have the capacity to be a miserable failure this week coming. But Jesus Christ, the one in whom we are all pointing to, is not a miserable failure who's never oppressed anyone. And I want you to notice that Peter, he switches to the first person at the end of that verse. He says, there is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. He's actually appealing to his accusers. Peter's not back on his heels. He actually puts his accusers on their heels. They're, they're there to judge. And Peter's saying, actually, guys, you're not the judge. Christ is the judge. And we all need him to be our justifier. And the good news of the gospel is that our judge is our justifier. That we, as the church, already have our verdict. And the verdict in the gospel is not guilty. Judgment day for us has already happened. It happened on the cross. We live in the eschatological freedom and reality of something that's already occurred in the past. There's a judgment that's coming in the future, but we're enjoying the reality of freedom in the present. And it's with that confidence that Peter stands there and goes, I'm not inferior to any of this questioning. I'm not intimidated by this. That's the work of the Spirit, not just in Peter, but in you and in me. Because of that radical relocation of identity. We're not superior to anyone and we're not inferior to anyone. And I think a good context for you to consider would be to wonder where in your life you feel because of your faith you're inferior. Where in your life do you feel because of your faith that you're somehow now intimidated? And you know, often, and I've been, you know, in, I've been in pastoral ministry with Susan for 24 years. And granted, the first 15 years, my theology was a train wreck. But I'm going to say something that I've noticed consistent for all 24 years. Many Christians say, I can't really share my faith or talk about the gospel because I don't know enough. That's pretty common for North Americans to be like, my problem is education. But, the, but here's what I would, would invite you to consider. I'm not sure that our problem is a lack of education as much as it is a fear of ostracism. Right? To be ostracized is to be set out to be like, oh, everybody's looking at me now. What happened to Peter here? And you can have feelings like that at the office or even in your living room talking with a family member or a friend. And you can feel like if I go there, I'm going to be ostracized. And the fear is not really a fear of education. It's a fear of ostracism. You know, I've, in the last four years since we planted this church, I preach 50 Sundays a year. So that means you've heard the gospel, for those of you who've been here, you've heard the gospel 200 times. I've preached 200 sermons, 200 different angles, getting to the goodness of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. So it's possible that I'm a lousy teacher. So that's one possibility. But it's also possible that in those 200 sermons that I preached, one of them was decent. And the problem is not education. It's this fear of ostracism. The good news of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you and I is that he is the cure for our ostracism. And Peter is standing there 
giving us this beautiful picture of, wow, look at what the indwelling power of the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't use Peter because of his incredible education. Everybody in that whole semicircle staring at Peter is smarter than him. But God doesn't use Peter because of his education. God uses, God, God uses uh, uh, Peter because the power is not in the eloquence of the messenger. The power is in the message. And the Holy Spirit has emboldened us all to be messengers. And here's the final thing as I close. The Holy Spirit ministers to others through you as the gospel is spoken by you. Now I'm going to be very specific here. If you look at verses 10 to 12, very specific. You look at, what G, look at what Peter says. Look at his words. He says, Let it be known to you and of all the people of Israel but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Those words, those are the words of the gospel. That's where the power is. Speaking about the resurrection dominated the conversation in the first century. And those Greco-Romans weren't intellectual slouches. They were grown with, raised with Platonic educations. They've got these giants of philosophy. I mean, they, it was a, they were an intellectual culture. But these words of gospel are so powerful that cause for the eyes to be opened by the Holy Spirit for them to abandon those philosophies to find rest in Christ. And that should encourage you and I, church, that these words of gospel must be spoken by us. Talking about Christian ethics is not the gospel. Telling people that we go to church is not the gospel. And I'm not suggesting that we keep our Christian worldview to ourselves and out of public discourse. Not at all. Public discourse is about engaging diverse worldviews present at the table. So we should take our seat at the table with everybody else. So please understand I'm not saying that. My point is this. If you and I are giving advice that's informed by the wisdom of God's word, or we're relating to people of non-faith with love and dignity according to the guidance of God's word, that is good. That blesses them. But that is ministering common grace. Speaking these words of gospel. This is the power of saving grace. These are the words that must be spoken by us, church. This is the power It's not in you, it's not in me, it's not in our eloquence or our lack thereof. It's these words. These are the words that the Spirit uses to draw to saving grace. Talking about who Jesus is for us. Why we needed the death that he died for us. The eternal hope and rest that we have because of the implications of our resurrection. What that means for us. Having strength and weakness because by grace and faith, Christ has united himself to us. That's the gospel. The Holy Spirit from millennia has been bringing people to saving faith as Christ's church shared these words of gospel. So may the Spirit continue to humble us. May the Spirit continue to embolden us. May the Spirit continue to minister through us as these words of gospel are spoken through us. Amen.